we've got more analysts talking about cost inflation falling rather than rising in the year ahead. Just because the majority of companies are not experiencing problems in refinancing, it doesn't mean that the minority can't be the tail that wags the dog. So the results we're seeing are something we've never seen out of our Japanese analysts in the past. How confident are CEOs as they lean into 2024? Is inflation still a major worry for businesses or has that been banished? How concerned are company managers about shifting geopolitics? For well over a decade, we've been asking our worldwide network of sector analysts these questions and about 80 more to get a unique bottom-up picture of the companies that they cover. These thousands of data points are pooled together and teased apart by a team of quants and poured over by senior investors. Their conclusions form the annual analyst survey. Listen on to hear a panel of Fidelity experts explain what they mean for the year ahead. I'm Richard Edgar, and this is Rich Pickings, Fidelity's asset allocation podcast. Well, I'm joined in the studio by Geeta Bao, Global Head of Fixed Income Research, Fiona O'Neill, Head of Global Cross-Asset Research Capabilities, and Fixed Income Portfolio Manager, Chris Atkinson. Welcome to you all. Hi, Richard. Before we jump into the results, Fiona, as I mentioned in the introduction, we've been doing this survey for quite some time now. So how useful are the data points that are collected by the analysts, the views that we form out of all of this? Yeah, so I think you said it beautifully in your introduction that this is the knowledge of the cross-asset research team. It is the views of businesses from the mouths of businesses as captured and reported by our analysts. Um, we've been doing it for a decade now, this annual survey. We've got around 80 questions that we ask on an annual basis. Um, we don't just take the results of that, but the beauty is we can go back, we can tease out the nuances, we can go back and ask further questions of the analysts and really bring it all together to take you know, the views of individual companies, put it together to form the views of sectors, put it together to form you know, aggregate views of regions. So that's the process. That's you, the process. You, does it come up with anything? In 2014, a decade ago, the survey predicted that tech and pharma were most likely to outperform energy and materials. A year later, um, the survey predicted the wave of defaults that we saw in resources names in the high yield bond market. And, you know, the survey has also really done a good job of predicting booms in um, M&A, share buybacks, dividend growth. So are we picking up things here that Absolutely. we're not picking up elsewhere? And what we did at the beginning of COVID was that we um, supplemented the annual survey with a monthly so-called pulse survey. Um, and we're focusing very much on things like sentiment, leading indicators and costs. And I think it's really important to call out that our analysts called the challenges on labour and non-labour costs as early as the end of 2020. We started with our survey results talking about the likelihood of inflation long before the market started talking about it and factoring it into share prices. Okay, Chris, um, you actually manage money. How do you take this intelligence that's, um, that's, that's gathered in the survey, whether it's the annual one or the, the monthly pulses, um, as Fiona called it, that, that, that we take? How does that get incorporated in, in your thinking and, and what you actually do? Yeah, so Richard, it's um, it's an important piece of the the jigsaw that we try to to sort of put together to understand uh, where the market is is heading. Uh, it can act as a, a really important uh, counterweight to market consensus. It can identify where the market is mispricing or misidentifying uh, risks, um, and so we use it as a as a component of our analysis that is relatively real time. So, in contrast to, for example, um, economic data, 
which tends to be backward looking, obviously, and reported with lag. Uh, this gives us a much more sort of um, real-time uh, insight into what uh, companies are thinking, seeing, and doing. If we extend the metaphor slightly uh, of the jigsaw, right? So the problem that we have with the market uh, and the way that we're the way that we look at it is that picture that is on the front of the jigsaw box is is constantly evolving, right? So when we get a a piece of the jigsaw that doesn't fit, we have to figure out whether or not um, uh, we need to throw away the piece or we need to throw away the rest of the jigsaw uh, and start again. So actually, that's how I use um, this survey. I think it's a really important piece of uh, of information that we can that we you know we have an advantage relative to our competitors in piecing together what's going on in the market. Okay, and turning to Gita and to the survey itself, the annual survey 2024. What stands out most as you uh, as you flip through? I think for me, the biggest takeaway is that um, we, we've all been waiting for well over a year for a recession that never seems to come. And what our analysts are really talking about now is much more, um, many of them seem to be in that soft landing camp. And one of the things that they, they are highlighting is that the highest percentage of our analysts who've reported on this survey have said that their companies are currently in slowdown. But the highest percentage of our analysts, as they look 12 months ahead, are saying that their companies are going to be in the early stages of expansion and recovery. And so they're really painting quite a benign picture about where we are in the economic cycle. The second thing that our analysts are talking about is after multiple years of really highlighting the risks of inflation, we've seen a rapid retrenchment with now more analysts talking about um, saying that they're, they're likely to see cost decreases than cost increases in the year ahead. We've got more analysts talking about cost inflation falling rather than rising in the year ahead. That's the first time since the pandemic that we've seen that. And what the um, anecdotes that I mentioned earlier, that what we tease out from the analysts is that what they're um, seeing is that the companies are moving away from worrying about inflation. Um, and even in areas where it's perhaps a little bit stickier, uh, they're actually adapting. They're, they're dealing with the challenges. They found other ways to cut costs. They are also finding that they are more able than perhaps we might have predicted to pass on rising costs to the customers. So that's good news on the um, equity side. You're going to see revenues uh, increasing, margins uh, improving. Um, Chris, that that big picture, though, of um, uh, the analysts expecting inflation um, to recede somewhat, disinflation, is good news, no? Uh, but for company investors, absolutely, yes. Um, yeah, so I mean, as, as Fiona said, you know, we're, we're, our analyst survey did a very good job of anticipating the increase in inflation. Uh, the fact that it's uh, pointing towards falling inflation going forward is, is really good news for, for us. Uh, obviously, we've uh, been through a period of um, volatility in the markets, um, and in particular in interest rate markets, as a function of that uh, high and volatile inflation. And the, it has taken some time for uh, the market to build conviction that inflation is falling. And indeed, as we see the sort of monthly data prints coming through and the, the volatility within those data prints, the market uh, confidence ebbs and flows. Um, I think what we're seeing with the, you know, the forward-looking data that we're getting from the analyst survey is uh, actually you know, reinforces the, the conviction that we have that uh, being overweight um, duration, overweight interest rates, uh, and therefore, overweight fixed income is actually uh, the right way to be positioned going to uh, 2024. 
So it's helping to to build your conviction there. Yeah. Okay, well let's um, let's take a, a look at the um, sector level because um, the analysts uh, we we can break down the data um, at that level as well. And senior credit analyst Liz Brockway she covers the chemicals sector. A little bit earlier she explained why the companies that she covers are primed for a recovery. just come off a period of substantial destocking since the second half of 22. That was preceded by a period of outperformance and I want to say super profits as clients um, shored up some safety stock during the supply chain issues. What we see now and where we place in the cycle is that this unwinding um, of inventory is largely behind us. I think we're currently seeing that we're firmly at the bottom of the cycle and starting to move out into mid-cycle conditions, I want to say, towards Q2 as we see that sequential recovery in the volumes. Liz Brockway from the private credit team. Now, Gita, Liz was describing that she's expecting her companies to enter an expansionary stage. That was quite a common theme uh, in the responses this year, wasn't it? It, it absolutely was. I think I think we definitely had winners and losers on a sectoral basis. And if we look right now as to what our analysts are saying, um, a sector like real estate stands out for just how bearish our analysts are at present on conditions in that in that space. And and you can see where that's coming from. Whether you look at news articles about what's happening in China property or European and U.S. commercial real estate, but what we see as they look to the year ahead is that they tend to be um, looking much more balanced in terms of some people are actually saying that we're going to be recovering from the stage that we're in right now. Very similar story in places like consumer uh, discretionary, where um, you know much more balanced today, but but actually m- many analysts asking for expansion or expecting expansion next year. Is this just a natural optimism on the part of the analysts, or do they sometimes call things the other way? Um, they absolutely call things the other way. <laughs> I, I, I'm also going to remind everybody that this is a cross-asset collaboration. And, and as the head of fixed income uh, research, my, my analysts are typically not known for their optimism <laughs> and rosy picture of the years ahead. So I, I think what they're saying genuinely reflects what they're, they're hearing from management teams. What about corporate debt and refinancing needs? Because that was a big concern last year. It's what many people thought might drive us into recession as central bankers kept rates high. As early as 2022, we started asking analysts about the maturity wall that we expected to really kick in in 2024. And our analysts were watching that as as something that would come um, down the line. And, And I think many people would have worried, given the recent central bank actions over the past year plus, um, to raise rates that that this would actually constitute a big problem for the markets. But what 60% of our analysts are saying is that it is a very small minority of their companies that actually need to access markets this year to refinance. And of that group of analysts who are saying their companies need to refinance, it's an even smaller percentage that are looking at that as a challenge for them. Happy days, Chris. Um, or would you beg to differ? Uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm about to clamber up onto my soapbox on, on this particular <laughs> um, uh, uh, subject, to be honest. Um, I mean, obviously, so 60% of um, uh, the analysts are saying that there isn't a problem in terms of the refinancing, which is good, right? So that's that's good news. Um, of course, that, that really just represents uh, the sort of market 
composition, right? So obviously we cover large investment grade, large listed companies. You would expect them not to have a problem with um, refinancing. You would hope they don't have a problem with refinancing. And if we look back over the years, um, you know, to the peaks in the default cycle, right? Then the, the peak default rates are somewhere in the region of say 13, 14%, right? Back in um, the dot-com bubble, back in the global financial crisis, and it's 13% of the high yield market. So um, those default rates are, are really quite small um, in comparison to the, to the overall market. So if we've got 60% of the analysts saying that there isn't really a uh, isn't really a problem, you should expect that. That means that 40% of the analysts are saying actually the problem's a little bit bigger. And actually when you dive into the numbers in, in more detail, you've got about 8% of analysts saying that roughly half of their companies have got a significant refinancing need this year. Another eight um, percent uh, of analysts saying that you know twenty to forty percent of their uh, of their companies have got a significant re- refinancing need, uh, and those are quite big numbers, right? So I these, think are the, these are the cracks that these um, are the cracks. Steve Ellis, yes. the uh, CIO for fixed income, he's been warning about for, absolutely, uh, right? So months now, many months. Yeah, if you if you think about that default rate that we experienced previously, right? Those those were not um, fun market conditions to to navigate through. Just because the majority of companies are not experiencing problems in refinancing. It doesn't mean that the minority can't drive, can't, can't, you know, can't be the tail that wags the dog, if you like. So I'm actually quite concerned about this. We know that uh, companies at the bottom, bottom end of the credit quality spectrum are struggling to refinance. Um, if, they, if they can access the market, they are doing so at extremely punitive rates, which bring into question the viability of the business over the medium term. So at the moment, the market is open um, for investment grade, it's open for some parts of high yield. Um, credit spreads are low, yields are stable, uh, maybe falling, depending on which day you look at the market. Um, therefore, um, you should be, if you've got a refinancing need this year, you should be running into the market as quickly as you can because um, uh, if market conditions deteriorate at all, um, then it's going to become very challenging for that 40% um, uh, of analysts and companies that, that have a more significant challenge this year. So Fiona, Chris is doing what he's paid to do, which is to to be an Eeyore in the in in the room, looking for um, the problems that might be around the corner. Comes very easily it, to me, Richard. Yes, <laughs> but, um, but just coming back to the survey, Fiona, because the the management teams that the analysts are talking to are not following Chris's um, line. The the management sentiment was much more sanguine, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, when Geeta and I first went through the survey results, that was one of the things that really stood out, that although sentiment was still negative, it was a lot less negative than when we ran the survey a year ago. The point that I would make is that, obviously, as I mentioned earlier, we have the monthly pulse survey as well. And actually, since we ran the annual, we've had the January pulse survey. And what's really stood out there is we are actually now on a global aggregate basis in positive territory for management sentiment. For the first time since? For the first time since mid last year on a global level. But I I think what really stands out is the regions like Europe and North America are positive for the first time since the first quarter of 2023. Um, so that really stands out that we got this positive trajectory and management teams are exactly as you said, more sanguine, starting to be more optimistic about the outlook. And I think that tallies with what our analysts are also saying about where they expect their companies to be in 12 months time notwithstanding the challenges that Chris has already highlighted to us. So having said what I've said, it's perhaps also worth highlighting that whilst we've seen positive um, shift in North America and Europe, it is undoubtedly the case that sentiment in China is still quite fragile. 
Well, that's a very good point then to start talking about Asia, um, Fiona. Thank you very much indeed. Because the survey really picks up on two countries in particular. We've got Japan, which continues to see positive sentiment from businesses and investors, and China, where the analysts are reporting a much more fragile state of affairs. Now, Chris, um, earlier in the week, actually there have been a flurry of announcements from the authorities in China. There's been a, a cut in bank reserve requirements that's freed up about a trillion renminbi, about 140 billion US dollars going into the, the banking system and then in theory into the economy um, as a whole. It's an example of the stimulus from government. Is it giving you confidence that they're sorting things out or is it more a signal of the things that um, still need to be sorted out? Yeah, I think it's probably probably the latter, really. It's uh, an indication that there are sort of problems brewing beneath the surface. I mean, I think you know, the, the, the important um, point I would make is uh, as, a, as a global IG investment grade uh, manager and, and also a sterling investment grade manager, China uh, uh, is an increasingly small part of our of our benchmark, right? So we've experienced a wave of downgrades over the last uh, couple of years uh, that have reduced the weighting uh, of China credit to below 1% uh, in, in my benchmark now. So and as a consequence of that, we have very little China exposure. The political risk <clears throat> that we've experienced and the downgrade risks that we've experienced over the last 12 months, uh, for example, has just meant that the risk reward for us is just is just not attractive. We've seen too many uh, good investment grade companies end up trading at pennies uh, in the pound uh, to, uh, to, to take those risks. So we're, we're effectively uh, zero weighted at the moment. So caution there, very clearly from Chris on China. But Gita, um, is there any silver lining that you can find in the survey about China that suggests that um, there are conditions that, that, that you know, it, it could things could turn around? One of my favorite charts in the survey shows um, labor price changes by region um, across all of our analyst community. And what it shows very starkly is China is the one place where labor cost pressure is very dramatically decreasing. Now, that would be in and of itself an interesting thing. However, China's got two meaningful impacts that could really um, fuel disinflation and deflation globally. Number one, it's the second largest economy in the world, so incredibly meaningful in global statistics. But number two, it's positioning as a manufacturing hub um, means that where there is um, higher youth unemployment in China, where there are falling wages, we could expect management teams to start to utilize the manufacturing capacity to bring down their cost bases and potentially help with that global inflation problem that we've been talking about for, for several years now. As long as the manufacturing stays within China and isn't being moved elsewhere, which is another of the themes that, that we've been covering. You actually just come back from a trip to Asia. We're talking about the analysts at the moment. We're going to hear from one in a moment. But what, what were you picking up from them when you were talking to your team in Asia um, about current conditions? Yeah, I mean, I think my favorite anecdote that I heard when I was there was that um, there is significant consumer sentiment weakness amongst the general populace. And the story that everyone told me was that right now what they're seeing is down trading in coffee and tea. And so <laughs> cheaper that coffee, cheaper, cheaper tea. tea, cheaper coffee send, tend to be the ones with the longer queues and the, where people are going, um, even those who are in um, high employment areas like Shanghai. Well, weak consumer sentiment is something that our analyst Eric Tse is also watching closely in China. I covered the China auto sector, and for most of my companies, the outlook is actually slightly negative. 
And that's mainly because there's uh, very fierce price competitions among the automakers. In part, that is because of a weak consumer sentiment. And in other part, it's because there are a lot of new brands that got launched in the last two to three years. Most of these brands haven't reached a critical scale where they can become profitable. So they are really competing aggressively for market share in order to turn profitable. Uh, analyst Eric Tse speaking. Now, Fiona, that's the picture in, in China. What are analysts saying about Japan? They're incredibly bullish. And I think what stands out is that the revenue expectations, the earnings expectations for 2024, you know, lead the way in Japan uh, across our global analyst team. Um, on, ev on pretty much every measure, uh, there's positivity. The prospects for margin expansion, for capex, for return on capital, for the ability to pass on cost to consumer, for being in an expansionary phase in 12 months time, 88% of our Japanese analysts expect their companies to be in expansionary phase in 12 months time. So that really does contrast that the level of positivity there that we're seeing versus China. So Fiona and I have been involved with this survey since its inception more than a decade ago. Um, I just want to highlight how extraordinary these results are from Japan. Um, so the results we're seeing are something we've never seen out of our J Japanese analysts in the past. More importantly, they, they are results we seldom see in any region or any sector at any point um, just because they are just that positive. And what I think is driving this is after multiple decades of zero inflation or deflation in Japan, um, this bit of inflation has really turned the tide on sentiment and on, on and on the markets in Japan, and and it's really been a cause for something positive. A real transformation. As it happens, we've got another of our analysts uh, to tell us a little bit more about this. Um, this is Aki Takaasu, uh, who is a Tokyo-based healthcare analyst. The healthcare sector, especially medical device company, had a tough year last year because cost inflation squeezed their margin. However, they have been able to pass the cost increase to customers. Even price of the medical supplies, such as infusion-related products, injections, etc., was raised for domestic hospitals. That was surprising because we've not seen this for quite a while. As a result, this price hike in addition to improving number of cases, it's most likely to improve margin of medical device companies toward 2024. Aki Takaosu speaking to us there from Tokyo. Chris, after hearing that, is Japan on your radar? Absolutely, um, as you would hope. Um, it is. A, it is about. Um, uh, it's about two and a half percent of our benchmark. So it's still relatively small. Um, however, uh, is, is, is that changing that percentage? Uh, no, it's fairly stable. It's fairly stable. So the the biggest um, component of the uh, uh, of the Japanese companies is the uh, the mega banks. Um, uh, so that's about half of the overall um, uh, weighting uh, in the benchmark. And of course, these these results point towards uh, a positive environment for, for for the mega banks, both in terms of you know you would expect growth, um, but also um, credit quality, and therefore you know pressure on their on their NPLs. The other, so that that is an area where we are um, we're overweight, um, we're overweight the, the Japanese mega banks, um, but also this adds conviction to other positions that we have in the portfolio, such as. 
um, a short in um, uh, in Japanese rates. So, uh, given the strength in the in the underlying um, uh, economy, you would expect that pressure will continue to build on the Bank of Japan to. Uh, release uh, its control on the uh, on the Japanese yield curve, uh, and therefore that for us is an interesting um, opportunity as we move forward through 2024 to add um, alpha through um, uh, the sell-off in, in Japanese rates, being the only market, major market in the world that hasn't experienced the sort of volatility that we've seen um, uh, over the past 24 months. So a very different um, picture than it's been for a very long time. And Gita, coming back to you. The one area, though, where analysts scoring Japanese companies were uh, scoring worse than the rest of the world was on their concerns around geopolitics and the impact of geopolitics on business. So why is that? I think there's a few things going on in Japan in this respect. I think, first of all, it's um, the regional tensions that we've seen between China, Taiwan. There have been elections in Taiwan. All of those types of things will be weighing on our analyst sentiment. But also remember that um, one of the large markets for a lot of different Japanese um, companies is going to be the U.S. We obviously have a major U.S. election coming up in, in November. So I think that this is just reflective of an overall kind of, hang on a second, more people are going to the the polls this year than ever in our history, as I think you like to say, Richard. It's on my script, actually. (laughs) Yes. Stole your line. (laughs) (laughs) But um, it's a huge year for elections. It's a huge year for um, uncertainty about what the years ahead will look like. The reason that I think the rest of our analysts are more benign about this is, and this is a personal view, I think after seeing since 2016, um, first Brexit, then Trump, then COVID, then Ukraine, then Gaza, I think there is a lot of um, acceptance that that challenging geopolitical conditions are maybe the order of the day. Just get used to it. Uh, is, is that something you agree with, Fiona? Because um, it is strange, isn't it? I mean, um, it's not. it can't just be... Japanese companies that have noticed that there is an awful lot of elections going on, including a big market in the US. Yeah, you're right. But I think, you know, our analysts are highlighting, only a quarter of our analysts are suggesting that the geopolitical backdrop is encroaching upon the investment of their companies. Nobody seems to be talking about it. But I don't think that necessarily tells us that they're not thinking about it. I think, you know, as Gita said, we've become much more aware of how events can impact. Um, But also there's so many political sensitivities at play. If you are the CEO or CFO of a company, how much do you actually want to articulate out loud, uh, particularly as you go into, for example, the big US elections at the end of the year? So not not saying anything about it, um, Chris, or is it heads in the sand? Yeah, I think I think not saying anything about it is definitely uh, a, a factor. Um, no one wants to sort of uh, put their uh, their flag in the sand, so to speak, and um, uh, uh, upset uh, uh, either side. Um, I think for me, however, given the way that markets are priced currently and the increasing geopolitical risk that we see going forward, that's an example of where this survey highlights an underpriced risk. Uh, we know that the, the U.S. election is going to be um, uh, hotly contested. We know that the Middle East 
um, is a, as, as one commentator put it, a tinderbox um, with numerous actors um, able to uh, light a match uh, at any uh, given point. And these are all things that we should be thinking about and factoring into our, um, into our risks as we move forward through 2024. I, I agree with everything that, that Chris is saying. I think, I think he's got it spot on. However, the one point that I would make is with the backdrop of everything that we have seen since 2016, the question is specifically asking our analysts, are your companies changing their investment plans based on the current geopolitics? And what I would argue is, through all of the crises that we have seen in the past eight years, companies have already learned to adjust their investment plans to diversify the countries in which they invest, so forth. And, and I think that is also factoring into the response we're seeing to this question. I've got one last point that I want to raise, um, which is around sustainability, because one thing that did come out in the survey is that companies are still talking about it, despite the political uh, discussions there have been in some parts of the world around ESG. Over 80% of the analysts say that the company emphasis on ESG has not fallen over the last 12 months. But, Gita, they're raising flags over the ability of their companies to deal with the wave of regulation around sustainability that's coming their way. So, Richard, we've asked this question um, not just this year, but we asked it last year and got very, very similar results, that the, the emphasis amongst corporates around sustainability isn't changing. Why do we think that is changing? I think there's a number of reasons. Reason number one is I think the science behind particularly climate change seems to be far better accepted by, by corporates than sometimes by, by some of our leading politicians. Um, I think the reason that they accept it is they're seeing the real risks that it's posing to their businesses. They're seeing the real opportunities that it's posing. And they're seeing a real reason to transition their business models to adjust to um, that reality. Um, I think that um, I would encourage anybody who has not opened an annual report or gone to a company investor relations site in, in a few years to do so for whoever their favorite company is. And the reason I tell you to do that is because um, I can't think of very many companies that don't have a sustainability section in their annual report. And the vast majority of our big listed companies now have a sustainability report published on their site on an annual basis. Once you start disclosing to take away that type of disclosure is a very difficult thing for a company. So it isn't going to change. They've now built the processes whereby they're going to do these things. Um, I'd also just point out we've had a huge change in the green financing market, which Chris can speak to much more eloquently than I can, where whether it's green revolvers, um, green bonds, social bonds, sustainability linked instruments, these are all now methods by which companies are getting um, much more attractive financing available and therefore they're going to need to disclose and demonstrate that they're doing the things that they say. And finally, as you suggested, we've had so much regulation coming in um, in various parts of the world that companies are going to have to start disclosing stuff um, in a much more um, standardized manner. And so I just don't think that um, no matter what kind of the political waves, the, the kind of public press stories, I, I, I find it very hard to believe that this emphasis will decrease. Chris, this is your specialist subject. So um, do you agree it's here to stay? It cannot be erased by political whim? You know, obviously, you know, there was uh, pushback against ESG investing and sustainability uh, as a consequence of how far 
the pendulum swung uh, back in in the other direction. Recently, I think that 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 sort of pushback has sort of gathered a little bit of momentum, um, partly due to certain political actors who will constantly undermine the case for, for example, climate change. But also because we went through a period in the markets where those sectors that were sort of most commonly associated with sustainability were uh, relatively, uh, yeah, their performance was, was, was relatively weak. And so I think that sort of contributed to a narrative that said that actually ESG is out of fashion, um, it was just a fad, and therefore we're just going to move on. But that is categorically not the case, as, as Gita said. Um, corporates uh, are undertaking further measures both to report uh, on the TCFD, TNFD, which is um, uh, biodiversity reporting. That's a relatively new uh, thing in the market. Disclosure rules are increasing. Um, uh, investment plans are ramping up. Um, they may not shout about it quite as much as they, they did two years ago because of the pushback from most political actors. Um, but it's still very much there. And of course, that is absolutely the right thing to do because, as Gita said, you know, they accept the science. The science is there. It's irrefutable. Um, and the longer they delay those investment decisions, the higher the cost um, becomes. So that is, it's something that is, is definitely part of our um, investment thesis. It's part of the, the work that the analysts do on a day-to-day basis. And we don't see that going away. Okay. Well, thank you very much indeed. And that is almost all we have time for. But... Before we go, we need to play hotcakes and hot potatoes, the investment themes that you would buy like a hotcake and what you would drop like a hot potato. Gita, I'm going to come to you first. I, I'm going to go with a very surveyed theme response to both my hotcake and my hot potato. That's what we're here to talk um, about. <laughs> if, if you believe what our analysts are saying about management sentiment, about um, inflation coming down, about the possibility of us being in expansion, then I think um, places like mid-cap and small-cap equities where um, – um, where there has been an underperformance relative to their large cap cousins um, should be bought like a hot cake. Um, I think in terms of what you should drop like a hot potato, anybody who doesn't get the joke on sustainability, anybody who's not reporting these kinds of things because they're going to have to do it and it's going to cost them more to do it if they keep delaying. So I would drop all of those like a hot potato. No joke. They'll be laughing on the, on the other side of their faces. Um, and Chris, uh, what about you? Your hot cakes and hot potatoes? Uh, yeah, and unfortunately, I'm going to be a little bit of a fixed income geek here and, uh, and talk about yield curves um, because Hooray. we all love yield curves. Um, so... In terms of the, the hot cake, um, obviously we have uh, inverted yield curves uh, in the market at the moment, inverted government bond yield curves, which for, for those of you who uh, don't spend quite as much time studying yield curves as I do, uh, means that the, the front end of the yield curve uh, is higher than the back end, which is not the normal state of affairs, um, because normally you lend money for longer, you would expect to get more uh, compensation for that. And the reason, of course, is around uh, inflation uncertainty, interest rate uncertainty. So what that means is that you can lend money short and get a high yield than if you lend money long. So where we see value at the moment is in the front end of the credit curve. We've done a lot of work on this. And in the period post uh, the inversion of the peak inversion of the yield curve, um, short dated credit outperforms pretty much every other asset class. Right. So whether that be long dated credit, equities, cash, it is one of the strongest performing uh, asset classes. So in the funds, we are moving as much of our uh, credit to the front end of the curve as possible. Uh, the uh, hot potato that I would drop uh, is related to that, and that is long-dated credit. Uh, and partly because of that outperformance of, uh, 
at the front end of the yield curve, but partly because there is an extremely strong technical in the market at the moment where buyers who are focused on the absolute level of yield have been hoovering up um, long-dated credit as fast as they can. So that's sort of insurance money, pension money. Um, and that has driven credit spreads to an extremely low level at the back end of the of the credit curve. So 30-year um, uh, U.S. corporate bonds are trading at the tightest level that they ever have in all the history that we've got, right? So if I'm a, uh, trying to weigh the, the odds in my favor, that tells me that I have a lot of downside um, and not very much upside. Um, and the problem with the long end of the curve is that when things do start to move, that has a very big impact on your capital values. So uh, for this reason, we are uh, uh, heavily underweight the long end of the yield curve and we are heavily overweight the front end of the yield curve. As clear as it could be. Thank you very much. Chris and Fiona, coming to you finally. Your hot cakes and your hot potatoes. So Geeta and I have talked about the analyst survey for the last few years with you, and I um, reflected on what I've said and sounded like a broken record on for the last few years because I was extremely bearish on inflation and extremely bearish on interest rates um, within the UK. Uh, and so for the last two or three years, when you've asked me that question, I've said I've been really negative. I, my hot potato would be the UK. I'm actually going to pivot and my hot cake uh, this year based on, you know, potentially interest rates peaking, materials and labour costs moderating, companies getting more able to adjust their own cost base, pass on uh, uh, cost inflation. Um, so, you know, I'm much more positive on things like the housing space, consumer spending in the UK. So my hot cake is the UK. Hot potato. Um, look, I'm generally more positive. Um, and I'm usually, even for an equity person, quite bearish. Um, and so actually, I just, you know, a hot potato for me this year would be things like your traditional defensive sectors. I think, you know, um, I, I would be much more inclined to be on the more cyclical side of things. Thank you again. Good, good choices. And that is all the time we have this month. Thank you to Fiona, Gita and Chris and to all the analysts who've taken part as well. There's plenty more, of course, that we haven't been able to discuss from the survey today. If you'd like to read the findings in full, you can do so on your local Fidelity website or at fidelityinternational.com. We'll also put a link in the show notes. The producer today was Holly Eastman with production support from Canon Blitz. For now, from all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied upon by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without the prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.